Hi, I'm Johanna Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast that talks about how humans shape technology and how technology is shaping our society. Well, welcome to the first pod of 2023. Today on Tech Mirror, we're going to delve into privacy. As more and more of our lives move online or is facilitated by technology, the way that we regulate privacy will increasingly shape the future of our society. And privacy is going to be a particularly hot topic here in Australia as a multi-year review into Australia's Privacy Act has just been handed to the government. Now, Those of you who know me know that I am deeply interested in tech policy, but privacy is not something that I'm a specialist in. So I really wanted to bring together some experts to canvas the key issues. The aim of today's podcast is not to give you one answer, but we are going to share different experts' perspectives to give you a framing to think about privacy what it means to you, and what you want to see from the reforms we anticipate that the government will table this year. So let me dive in by introducing our three excellent guests. First up, we have Anna Johnston. Anna used to be the Deputy Privacy Commissioner for New South Wales, and when she left that role, she established the legal consulting firm Salinger Privacy. In 2022, during COVID, we must say, Anna was one of five people globally recognised by the International Association of Privacy Professionals for her role in shaping the future of privacy and data protection. Anna, thank you so much for being on the pod. Thank you for inviting me. Next up, bringing us a civil society perspective, is David Vale. He's the chair of the Australian Privacy Foundation, and he also teaches IT, digital and cyberspace law at UNSW. David, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And last, but not least, bringing us a private sector perspective, we have Sunita Bose. She's the managing director at Digi, which is an industry association advocating for the digital industry and for better digital policy in Australia. Sunita was also previously head of global policy for the online petition platform Change.org based in San Francisco. Sunita, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Johanna, for the opportunity. And I'm looking forward to a really interesting discussion with Anna and David. Me too. And I think we're going to start off with an easy question. Um, Some might suggest it's the elephant in the room when we're talking about privacy. Obviously, we'll we'll have a long discussion about the Privacy Act and and the reforms that um, we're hoping to see this year. But we can't start a conversation about privacy without addressing people saying that nobody, especially young people, care about privacy these days or The horse has already bolted and the three of you each work on privacy issues um, on a day-to-day basis. So how do you respond when people make these kinds of comments to you? I'm sure you get it all of the time. Um, Sunita, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, thanks, Johanna. It's a really interesting question. I guess it speaks to misconceptions around privacy and I think there are a few As you said, I lead an industry association that works with major technology companies. And I think one misconception that I often hear around data privacy is is this idea that it's an issue for technology companies only. Mm -hmm. And from my perspective, it's actually an issue that concerns every company that's collecting a name and email address, small and large, in every sector. Um, So it becomes really, really important when you think about that way for consumers because it concerns every product or service that they might be consuming these days. Um, you can't ring fence digital companies or tech companies when everyone is using technology. 
so technology companies are often in the spotlight when it comes to questions of data privacy, and I think they're rightly held to a level of public scrutiny. But there is a level of technical expertise with data governance in these sort of digital first companies. I think may not always be there in every single company that's using data these days. Um, so, you know, from, from my vantage point, I see a lot of mainstream technology companies offering their users the right to erase their data or the right to have their data accessed or privacy settings or, or, or privacy policies and experimenting with different types of privacy communication. Um, and that, I think, isn't always true of every company that uses personal data. So this is why this reform process that's happening right now is just so important because it's a really important opportunity to dive into people's um, perceptions and policy, try to come up with solutions that really level up the privacy protections that people have across the board, no matter what service they're using. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. This uh, comes back to the point of every company is an IT company these days. Anna, do you get this question? Do people say to you, but privacy is dead? Is that something that comes up in conversation? I certainly get it a lot. Yeah, it does, but less and less. Well, first, first of all, my comment usually, if someone says, you know, no one cares about privacy these days, that that comment is, it's often said by or attributed to people actually seeking to monetize your data. So, mm. um, you know, we've had some kind of famous quotes from Scott McNally and from Mark Zuckerberg sort of, you know, 15, 20, 25 years ago saying things like, you know, privacy is no longer a social norm. You've got zero privacy. Get over it. If you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. Um, but as I said, I take those statements with a grain of salt if they're if they're coming from people who are running big tech companies actually trying to monetize data. But even regardless, even when it's, you know, I'm at a barbecue or something and someone says something like that, um, I usually talk about the kind of real world harms that can happen to people when there are breaches of their privacy. And to be honest, since we've had the Optus and Medibank data breaches, that point has kind of been reinforced in most Australians' minds. I think that almost everyone at least knows someone who is affected by mm. either the Optus or Medibank data breach and they understand the kind of real-world harms that can arise when there's a data breach, when companies are collecting more information than they really need or holding onto it for longer. And th those kind of harms include things like identity fraud and theft, so, I, I mean, I've, I've never bought into that idea. If you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. The point is we've all got something to hide. It doesn't mean that we've done something wrong. Yeah, I think that's super, super important. And it was interesting to me, Kate Pounder, the head of the Tech Council, did a uh, address to the press club last week, and she flagged Optus and Medibank as driving cultural change within the tech industry in Australia, which is you know, um, really heartening to hear that message coming through from somebody like Kate. Um, David, do you get this question? Is it something that comes up uh, in the work that you do? I mean, obviously you don't believe it given you're chair of the Privacy Foundation. It's, it's an obvious question, but it's a self-serving question. It reminds me of the Google engineer. That was The general approach was privacy is over, get out of the way, you know, um, you're in the way of progress and, you know, it's, it's inevitable, resistance is futile, blah, 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 blah. They would say that, wouldn't they? I think it's the, um, you know, the, the phrase from um, British political history. It's very predictable because it's in their interest for people not to care. Now, the flip side of that is that uh, it's quite hard for people to care about privacy as a, an abstract concept. 
especially in Australia where effectively we have no real legal rights, you know, constitutional rights, they're, they're almost, you know, infinitesimal compared to places that actually do treat that sort of stuff um, um, seriously. And that's why the Optus and the, uh, the, the Medicare breach was so important because it suddenly clicked for millions of people. Oh my God, it was my radical records. I haven't been their customer for 10 years. What were they doing holding it? All of these obvious questions that a lot of principles sort of um, cover and a lot of very good entities actually look after all the time, but you know, don't dis- de- describe in great detail. Suddenly, you know, the, the clouds uh, part and it's, it's clear to people. So that's one of the things that it's really challenging. You know, so people like Anna and I, we, we, we work on a sort of a policy level at, at, a, at a level of abstraction about how do we turn this into rules that don't get in the way but sort of protect people. Um, to have a conversation about that, you actually need to get down, you know, uh, amongst the nitty gritty. And, and, and that's why it's um, sort of essential to sort of keep, you know, with the concrete examples, if you like, rather than um, the abstractions. Mm, and I think you're really pointing to something important there, David. We have what I would say is quite a unique moment of time in Australia. We have a government that is focused on these issues. We have a report that's been going on for a long time, building up the depth of knowledge and expertise that's just been handed to the government. And we also have an Australian public that is focused on these issues and wants action on these issues in a way that I don't, I can't certainly can't recall um, having had before. So, Anna, how do we translate that sort of trifecta into action? Um, We'll dive into the nitty-gritty, as David calls it, shortly. Can you maybe help us, for those of us who haven't been deeply involved in privacy, bring us up to date? What actually, this report that's been handed to government, what is it and what's been the process that's led up to it? Where we're at at the moment with this review of the Privacy Act, the starting point was 2019, the ACCC, so the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, put out the final report in their already long-running digital platforms inquiry. And amongst issues of, um, you know, the kind of competition issues about the market power held by the two biggest platforms being Facebook and Google, as well as those competition issues, they were looking at consumer protection issues. And a lot of the consumer protection issues obviously revolved around data and personal information. And what the ACCC said was that the market power of these companies is coming from the extraction and the monetization of our personal information. So they linked those two things together. The market power comes from the impacts and leads to impacts on individual privacy. So as part of that report, some of their recommendations were actually about um reforming the Federal Privacy Act. So the Federal Privacy Act in Australia regulates federal government agencies, but also importantly, the private sector. And the ACCC said, well, we need some reforms in particular that they called out that were needed were strengthening the definition of personal information. And that's a threshold definition in the Privacy Act. All of the privacy rules relate to data if it meets this threshold definition of personal information. And there'd been some confusion about whether technical things like uh, telephone metadata was in or out of that definition. So they said, well, we really need to strengthen and clarify that definition. And they also said, we need to also clarify what 
what are the elements necessary for a business to gain a person's consent if they are relying on that person's consent as, if you like, to giving them the legal authority to collect, use or disclose their personal information. So again, a lot of confusion about is opt-out consent? Can you infer consent? Is it consent if someone clicks on mandatory terms and conditions? So they made a number of recommendations, but they really focused on those two areas. The federal government in response said, okay, we accept those recommendations. We will review the Privacy Act and in particular focus on some of those areas. So that was all late 2019. In 2020, we got an issues paper from the Attorney General's Department. So that's the department running the review. Uh, Submissions were called. Another year later, end of 2021, we got a discussion paper submissions were called in response to that. Um, (laughs) Another 12 months later, December 2022, the final report was handed to the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, and in response, he released that report publicly last week and has called for yet more submissions. So Mm. I keep thinking we're at the end of the long road, but we're not quite there yet, but uh, we are certainly getting closer. And I have to say, I, I was, you know, quite surprised when the review uh, was re- released that there was a call for responses and another round of submissions into the review. I was expecting there to be the review released along with the government response. So, you know, we, we were talking earlier about a lot of the tech policy issues that I work on. Um, the government works incredibly fast and is often criticised uh, for moving too quickly. And for whatever reason, <laughs> privacy seems to be at the other end of the extreme. I want to canvas some of the key issues that uh, each of you, and I, I suspect it will be different issues for for the three of you as you're covering different perspectives. And you know, I, I do hope that is the case. As I said at the start, we want this episode to really cover off on those different perspectives and give listeners an opportunity to form your own opinions. If we look at the report that's been handed down, and it is important to flag for our listeners here that the report was handed down two business days ago as at the time of recording. So be kind to our uh, dear experts. We're not expecting them to have delved into all 320 pages and 116 recommendations. But based on your review of the documents that have come to date and also the submissions processes that you've all been involved in, what concerns or general principles do you hope that the government is going to prioritise in their response? David, why don't you go first and then we'll, we'll throw to Anna and Sunita. This is um, really difficult. It recalls to mind the process with sort of eerily familiar that occurred from around about the time the High Court in 2001 said there is no right to sue for breach of privacy in Australian common law made by judges, unlike virtually everywhere else, including New Zealand and most of Europe, the US, uh, UK, Canada, most of Asia. But we could make this up. There's nothing to stop us doing that. But it's complicated. And so this is the sort of thing that exactly uh, is what uh, law reform reviews are about mm. and what Parliament should, should do. They should get a, a system, systematic uh, answer to this question and some others. And so there was a review started by the ALRC and they added to it and added to it and added to it. There was a discussion paper. There was issues paper. And just, just to clarify for our listeners, this is discussion papers, another review before all of the reviews and submissions that Anna was just referring to. <laughs> this is years ago yeah, and, and yeah. it led to the biggest report 
that the Law Reform Commission had ever done, which is 3,000 pages, mm -hmm. and it had lots and lots of recommendations. So, like, I'm struggling with 320 pages. You can imagine we're only, you know, the most dedicated academic could even consider doing that sort of thing, and that was its flaw. That was the political flaw, the the real world, real politic flaw. Mm. Uh, there was too much stuff for, for people to digest, and I suppose I'm worried here that um, even though it's good to be comprehensive and I'm glad they've asked a lot of these questions, a lot, a lot of them are sort of fairly good and there's, there's lots of proposals, um, uh, it's very easy then to say at the end of it, but Rome wasn't built in today. We can't do everything at once. Um, and anyway, so, so that's, that's, I suppose, my concern here, that this is a recipe uh, or for an invitation both to opponents of any increase in protections for people to get another bite at the cherry and for the, the result of that and also sort of political caution or cowardice or, or, or whatever, um, just to, to mean that some of the best things, again, will be left out like they have been literally for 30 years. And so to put you on the spot, David, if you could have three changes, three proposals that were implemented, what three do you think are some of the most important? And to give Anna and Sunita um, forewarning, which I'm not doing for poor David, um, the question's coming to you next. Okay. Um, <laughs> to, to put the cat amongst the pigeons, the obvious one is um, the, the right to sue, the right to enforce your own rights, both more generally and also as a statutory tort to do that. Mm. That's absolutely essential. And it should come wrapped up with um, protections that make it easy to do a class action and that defend those uh, the people doing it who usually won't have um, much help and won't have many resources and won't have tax subsidies for their legal expenses or, or for their losses um, to protect them a bit from the adverse consequences of, of litigation, to, basically to make it easy um, and safe to take part in um, a class action, to, to keep the barriers to entry low, um, you know, to, to expect the courts to actually um, exercise their role in, in making sure things are clear and and uh, you know that that they're good um, cases to run and uh, that that would mean that everything else um, would be much more useful and that also you'd have a sudden change in boardrooms from the feeling of impunity that really nothing ever happens when the last time that there was a actual um, a, a successful attempt or even unsuccessful attempt by people to, um, to you know pursue their privacy rights in Australia how many businesses faced billion dollar penalties or, or, or damages um, awards after the, all those breaches last year, zero, we can basically ignore it, to suddenly thinking, oh, we better get our lawyers on it. Hello, Anna, um, can I just have half an hour of your time? Um, whatever. Um, but uh, suddenly to have to take it seriously. Okay, so that would be one. Um, another one, and, and this one is a little bit more diffuse in the, in the aim of keeping it simple, um, uh, all of the necessary consequences, if you as if you change from the model of um, maximalism, collect it all. You know, data is going to be the new oil, the new gold. To um, data minimization, uh, to to pick up the insights of the the IT security guru Bruce, Bruce Schneier, which is basically that IT security is over. No one can keep out a motivated intruder anymore. So it's not a question of if. But when something goes wrong and you generally can't fix it then, so the, the proper thing to do is prevention. And prevention means doing more with less, collecting less, storing less, uh, disclosing less. Um, and probably the final thing would be to re 
um, visit and reinvestigate uh, the risks around re-identification. I did an ill-fated report for a government agency a a couple of years ago that said you should be careful about this because these are risks that are diffused, they're projected off into the future, they often can't be not only fixed but they can't be discovered by the people that are subject to them and so um, the fact that they will get easier and easier over time as you get AI tools and the proliferation of matching data sets to help um, tiny fragments of data from any source um, get sort of reacquainted with the person that came from to, to increase the uh, attribution of traits, um, uh, if not complete identification. Um, what that means is that the reliance on so-called anonymization or um, de-identification to move whole slabs of data, uh, whether it's the census or whether it's uh, bits and pieces out of your computer or whether it's sort of marketing tracking information into this zone that is no longer personal information. It's no mm. longer subject to privacy laws or, or privacy concerns. Um, that is the sort of the sleeper issue that it's only going to get worse over time. So that, that'll be my three things. You've been listening to Tech Mirror, a podcast from the Australian National University's Tech Policy Design Centre. If you like what you're hearing, we would love it if you would give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review on your podcast platform of choice. This only takes a few moments of your time and it really does help us to promote the podcast and get more people involved in these important conversations. Now, enough interruptions from me. Let's dive back into this episode. So David's identified the right to sue. And I think many Australians would probably be surprised to know that if their privacy is violated, basically they can complain to the privacy commissioner, but they don't have a right to go to court, really. Then you're talking about data minimalisation as number two, David. So collecting less data, being smarter about the data that is collected, stored and retained. And then this issue of data uh, re-identification. So data that we might think has been anonymised now, but which in the future, because technology becomes more and more sophisticated, we will be able to re-identify. And I think there's some really interesting conversations. So I'll just note as a sidebar there for researchers and protecting researchers around the issue of data de-identification. Uh, Vanessa Teague has done some great work in that space. So, Anna, would you have any others that you'd add to the the top things that you would like the government to focus on in this area? Yeah, absolutely. I've I've got my top three for sure. And just very briefly before I I talk about those, the the principles that for me are driving what I identify as my top three kind of preferences for reform are or what I'm looking for, if you like. I'm hoping that our Privacy Act will be reformed to reflect, first of all, the reality of the 2023 and beyond digital economy, the law, you know, the rules we have were primarily drafted in the 80s and they just don't really reflect. Yeah, before Um, the internet, before Facebook, before Google, it's crazy. Before all of those things and and, (laughs) and even the updates that were done in 2014 reflected that law reform work that was done before, really effectively before social media and smartphones, let alone Internet of Things and all the rest. So we want our laws to reflect the reality of the digital economy. We also really need our Privacy Act brought into line with the expectations and requirements of our major trading partners. So a lot of focus on being recognised as having laws equivalent to those in Europe, but it's not just Europe. It's California, it's New Zealand, it's Korea, it's Japan, the UK and so on. And thirdly, we need to ensure that the laws reflect the expectations of the Australian community. And we know that people's expectations around the protection of their privacy have been increasing for the last five or six years. 
so they're the, they're the sort of uh, principles for me which which should be driving law reform. And in terms of well, then how do we achieve that? The three things that to me are most important to see um, succeed in this reform process. First is, and, and look, I agree with, with what David said and the, the right to sue or, or take a direct form of action for people to enforce their privacy rights is important. But to me, before we get to that point, we need to ensure that those privacy rights are strong and meaningful in the first place. So I want to see the law, the standards, if you like, made tougher. Yeah. Um, so the first thing for me is the scope of the act. So at the moment, I mentioned earlier, the um, personal information is this threshold legal definition. We need that strengthened and clarified. And there are proposals in in um, in the final report from the Attorney General's Department to do that. So I'm, you know, crossing my fingers that those reforms get up. And in terms of scope of the act as well, we really need to tackle the big four exemptions. So there's exemptions at the moment for small businesses, which something like 90, 95% of all businesses in Australia currently exempt from the Privacy Act. Um, media to a certain extent, political parties and employee records. Um, and I mentioned earlier the requirements of our trading partners. One of the things that has held us back in the past from being recognised as having sort of global standard privacy laws is those four big exemptions. So, um, so that's my number one thing is scope, actually have the Act deal with more organisations and more types of data. The second thing for me is ensure that the Act actually and the, and the standards in the Act, the privacy principles themselves, that they're actually going to tackle unfair conduct because what we really need to do is, as I said before, meet the expectations of the Australian community around what they expect is, um, you know, no more data sharing that they didn't know about or didn't consent to and no more secondary use of their data um, that they didn't understand or didn't consent to or were sort of pushed into. Um, so there is a proposal in the reform uh, the review report on the reforms, there's a proposal to introduce what's called the fair and reasonable test that would apply like an umbrella test or almost a filter you have to pass through. Your conduct has to be fair and reasonable before you're allowed to collect, use or disclose someone's personal information. I really, again, got my fingers crossed that that reform gets up. And the third one is to see an increasing responsibility on organisations to minimise the chance of their products doing harm instead of the way the law works at the moment, which is putting the burden on us as individual consumers and citizens to protect ourselves. And that's partly why, to come back to David's point about people being able to enforce their rights, that's great. But I would rather see first an obligation on organisations to not do harm in the first place rather than make us as individual consumers or citizens play catch up and try and, and, you know, have to enforce our own rights and, and seek penalties on our own behalf. I'd rather see organisations doing the right thing from the start instead. Mm, and transferring that that uh, responsibility. So I, I just wanted to draw out the link between, Anna, your first and second points there, because I think it's it's easy for a conversation around scope or definitions for people to sort of um, roll their eyes and start to go to sleep on issues about what is and isn't personal information. But mm -hmm. as an example of that linked to the question of unfair conduct and opting in and out, 
Um, With respect to, for example, targeted advertising, um, at the moment, targeted advertising, a lot of it doesn't rely on personal information, which is things like your date of birth, your name, et cetera, whereas um, it may include sensitive information that is collected about you when you are online. And so this definition of what actually is covered by the scope of the Act is also very much linked to this question of um, what is considered to be unfair conduct and, you know, and actually this, this much sort of separate but very related question around targeted advertising. So just, just want to flag that there um, for, our, for our listeners. Um, Sunita, that's also a good segue across to you. Um, so for, for Digi and for your members, what are some of the things that you're hoping to see out of these reforms? Look, I, I completely agree that the Privacy Act needs to be modernised. It wasn't built for a digital era. It wasn't built for a time where every company mm. is digital. So I think that's really key. It does need to level up uh, not only Australians' protections online, but also those organisational controls like Anna was talking about. So I think that's really critical. Um, we would like to see stronger consumer rights emerge from this process, including giving people the right to erase their data and stronger protections for minors online. And again, just bringing the conversation back to where we were earlier when we were talking about these recent data breaches that have occurred in the telecommunications and insurance sectors, they really do hammer home the economy-wide impact of these um, of this reform process. It may have emerged from the digital platforms in- inquiry, but it is a much mm. broader reform process. And I suppose in that... Um, there's some some complexity here, right? It's it's uh, privacy reform isn't going to be easy because every business is different, how they all use data is different, and how we reconcile that complexity in one piece of le- regulation is is going to really require extensive consultation to get it right. Um, look, thankfully we do have other markets to look at, and I think my third um, area that I would focus on is just the importance of global harmonisation. Uh, you know, Australia is a, is a small market. And um, as you all know from, you know, your your position, Johanna, we have a relatively small technology sector when you compare us to other OECD markets. There's been a lot of research here to actually show that, you know, Australia has the second smallest tech sector, second only to, to Mexico. So I think looking and at and leveraging, I guess, that the established global standards, not just um, because we're a small market, but because a lot of companies that are multinational or regional have, have already done a lot of that hard legwork to comply with the GDPR, for example. Um, it, it is sort of an established global standard I think we need to really, really look at through this reform process. I'll leave it there for now, but I will just sort of note that I have some first-hand experience in implementing GDPR for my previous role at change.org. And I'll just say very briefly, it's quite a complex process. I mean, it it involves companies looking at every function they undertake with their data, having records of all of their data processing, assigning a legal basis for all of that processing, appointing data protection officers sometimes and listing all their third parties that they work with. There are, of course, changes to consent and changes to privacy policies. And that's all incredibly important work. But I don't want to underscore how hard that work is. It's work that needs to happen. But I think to the extent that that work has already happened um, for companies that are more global, trying to replicate that for a smaller market like Australia, I think is going to be really, really important in terms of how we look at this reform process. 
Yeah, and I think what's interesting to me as well is GDPR is is so often held up to be the gold standard, um, and, but there are things about GDPR, including its complexity, as you were just referring to there, Sunita, um, that sort of undermine the key objectives of GDPR. Um, and you know, you're increasingly seeing conversations um, in Europe about how to strengthen it, how to amend and adjust some of those complexities. So really interested if anyone has any uh, responsive comments to things that each other has said there. I'll just pause for a minute and see if anyone wants to wants to jump in. Just on that GDPR question, I, I just um, observe that um, one of the reasons um, GDPR is by no means um, perfect, but it was a historical document in response to the revelations in the 2010s mm. about particularly the um, misuses of the global data giants and also of America considering that it ruled the world and, you know, because we've got California and, you know, the clouds hosted here, you know, basically uh, what we say goes and, you know, we will treat other people like um, non-US citizens so they have even less rights than Americans. But um, And so Europe um, saw that America had never adopted, you know, it's, it's the... Um, major advanced country sort of holdout from the, um, as we said, now a bit dated 1980s OECD guidelines on which basically Australia's laws and the GDPR and just about everything else is based on. But um, they also saw that US exceptionalism and the contempt that um, the European citizens were, were treated in uh, over this borderless internet thing as something that needed a very strong response. And so... Um, the, one of the things they were trying to do was to move beyond the um, and and Anna will no doubt correct me if I've, I've got any of this wrong. Um, the sort of uh, principles based sort of general ideas expressed in in those guidelines to very concrete things that were easier to audit, easier to, easier to do compliance um, on, and it's also probably a bit too complicated, but it's there for a reason, and that was that um, the previous regime did not give protection to, you know, half a billion people in Europe and all the rest of us, and it was sort of, in a sense, too easy to sort of pay lip service to and say, yeah, 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 your privacy is important, you know, we've, we've done a privacy policy, we've, we've checked this, you know, whatever. And it's almost as if they said, well, Oh, okay. You want to play like that? Well, how about this? And in my view, it was the correct response to a very aggressive anti-regulatory model coming out of California, the, the move fast and break things, the forgiveness, not permission, the sort of cult of disruption that basically said, if we can get away with it um, and we, we'll, we'll just ignore it, if we get caught, we'll say, oh, we're so cool, we're so young, we're so future, um, please just forgive us. You know, we didn't mean any bad by completely ignoring your rights. Um, and, it, and it took a very strict approach. So I think um, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We want to acknowledge the GDPR, I think, as a pretty good faith and a pretty diligent um, effort um, that have had lots of negotiation go, go, going into it um, to produce something that actually has set a, a global benchmark. And so mm. I, I think that much more rigorous and fine-tuned adaptation to the actual needs of the, the, you know, the regulatory problem is, is something we can also learn from the GDPR about. Mm. So, Sunita, I want to give you the option for a right to response to that um, before we move on to our next question, which we'll, we'll look at predictions for what we think is going to happen next. But first, Sunita, did you have anything you wanted to add? 
Yeah, look, I think there's a lot of interesting points there. I think the GDPR is the established standard. Having said that, and I think to your point earlier, Johanna, you know, you do have countries like the UK that are looking at where they can simplify the GDPR. It's, it's almost its fifth birthday this year. Um, you know, recognising those implementation tensions, you know, they're trying to reduce that uh, some friction and introduce some flexibility. And I suppose my vantage point when I come at a lot of this debate is on that implementation side, as I mentioned before, I've I, I've have had the experience of sitting down and working to implement GDPR, and I can tell you, it would took me about nine months. I was working for a smaller platform, Change.org, as you mentioned, and it was a highly complex project. And so I think this is quite critical as companies go into this reform process. This is going to be a change management process for a lot of companies. Um, I wish there was some big button that you could press that could magically <laughs> give everybody their varying consumer privacy rights, but it, it is far more complex than that. You know, if you think about even the right to erasure, which I'm very supportive of, you know, you've got to both create that front end of enabling that customer service interaction of uh, having people be able to request that their data be erased. But then you also have those back-end systems of actually ensuring that the personal information is actually deleted across all of the different processes that a, that a company works with. So it, it is really those implementation um, challenges and perhaps to use David's word from earlier, the nitty-gritty of how this actually works across the wide range of, of entities that are subject to the Privacy Act, I think is going to be quite critical because there's the principal level, but there's also the implementation. Mm. And I think that's going to really rely on getting this consultation process right over the coming months um, through this reform process. Mm. And I think just to, to briefly touch on GDPR, without question, it is considered to be international best practice. I guess what I would not like to see is that GDPR becomes stagnant that um, or that we accept that GDPR is the only standard. What I'm interested in is how do we ensure that GDPR is actually achieving its goal of making uh, it easier for people to have privacy online because that's a fundamental uh, human right uh, and important to the future shape of our society. If we don't get that right, um, then we will have serious problems going forward into our future. So how do we take GDPR as the benchmark best practice and what is it that Australia can do to build on that going forward. Um, so Anna, now leading into the question of what happens next, the Attorney General uh, Mark Dreyfus has said that he hopes this report sparks a, a national conversation around privacy. Um, all three of you have highlighted um, issues that you think are really important in the reforms. What do you think the next steps will be? What What are your predictions? Do you think we will see another round of consultation? Do you think we'll see exposure drafts and actual action on this in this parliamentary cycle? You know, I have read some commentary of people saying they're still expecting this to be ongoing for a number of years. I really hope it happens sooner than that. It needs to happen sooner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Attorney General has previously committed to bringing forward a bill to parliament this mm. term, so this term of parliament, so this side of an election. I think it's really important. You highlighted before we've, we've, the timing's right. We've, we've got a lot of political will and community support in favour of reform. We know that technology is moving so quickly that every, you know, every year that reform is delayed is another year lost to help organisations um, really improve their practices and meet customer expectations. 
But I look, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have the inside word on exactly what either the Attorney General's department or the Attorney General himself has planned. Um, if I can say something in response yeah, to the do. earlier discussion, though, about sort of GDPR as the global benchmark, I I want to echo some of Sunita's concerns about the kind of, um, I call it privacy busy work. Mm -hmm. So it's a lot of paperwork mm -hmm. involved in implementation. <laughs> yeah, the compliance paperwork involved in GDPR and um, quite often the compliance paperwork does not directly translate to improved mm. privacy outcomes for individuals. I think one of the good things that has come out of the review of the Australian Privacy Act is that the and, and the proposals that we've seen so far is that it's not just a kind of slavish copy and paste of the GDPR. They've picked up um, proposals, obviously from you know reflecting what the Australian community has been asking for, but they've also looked at um, Canadian models, for example, where they have. This a similar idea to the fair and reasonable test and they have no-go zones and the Privacy Commissioner can issue guidance on what sort of no-go zones there might be informed by community consultation on specific topics. So that that gives you legal standards but that, that can flex over time to reflect new technology developments. They've also um, picked up on developments in jurisdictions like including Europe, but also California, for example. So the Californian privacy law is not restricted to, in its scope, to data that directly identifies an individual. So it covers information about people if they can be um, singled out and tracked and targeted online, for example. Um, and those pro so those proposals are in the Attorney General's Department's um, list of 116 <laughs> proposals to reform the Privacy Act. So I'm um, – and, and and it's – you know, there are some areas where I look at it and think, oh, well, that's, that's a compliance burden without necessarily delivering mm. improvements. So there are some of those proposals that I'll say, look, I just don't think this is necessary. I can see that our client organisations – We'll have to do a bunch of paperwork like standard contractual clauses or data processing agreements without it. You know, it's extra work for lawyers, but it's not necessarily extra good outcomes yeah. for individuals. Um, so there's a couple of things like that that I'll be saying, look, I, I wouldn't be bothered. I wouldn't put any effort into that. I don't think that's yeah. going to help anyone. But as I said, the overall tone I think is heading in the right direction and I do hope that the kind of consultation process, which is only for about another five weeks, 31st of March is yeah. the deadline for people to make submissions on on that the 116 proposals. I'm hoping that that it's you know it's largely supportive because I do think that generally speaking, I think they're getting the balance right between improving the kind of privacy standards that apply to organisations but that actually deliver on improving practical outcomes for individuals instead of it just being a whole bunch of compliance paperwork hassle. Yep. Look, I 100% agree with that. Um, and I think Attorney General Dreyfus has said very clearly when he introduced the report uh, into Parliament on Thursday that 
the report um, has found that the Privacy Act is not fit for purpose in the digital age. And I think it's difficult for someone who's said that on the floor of Parliament not to be seen to be taking action. And, it, and he has, you know, made that undertaking. Um, folks, we've, we're coming up to time. Um, we've flagged key issues that you all hope we will see um, included in reforms that come, issues relating to scope, consent, whether consent is opt-in or opt-out, de-identification, a statutory tort, so be people being able to actually take action in court, uh, international harmonisation and uh, resourcing, uh, I would add to that as well. If we're going to be creating um, these new actions, we need to make sure that we're resourcing the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner appropriately, which is something we haven't touched on. Um, we're going to wrap up now um, with a brief round of recommendations from each of you. So if our listeners are looking for more information or good resources in this space, what is your go-to resource? Uh, David, let's start with you, then we'll go to Sunita uh, and Anna to, to finish. I'm going to give a sh shameless plug here. Um, no such thing. <laughs> I, I rely on um, the uh, incredible corpus of uh, submissions and analysis by people in the Australian Privacy Foundation, mm -hmm. um, including people like Anna uh, in, in her past and um, other people who have um, very great depth of expertise, um, just because um, it covers a lot of stuff and it, it identifies um, where some of the ideas um, come from, probably not quite as um, coherently as, as, as Anna's done for us um, t today, but um, you, can, you can use it to trace things and it, and it flags issues that sort of um, at the time may not have been um, widely accepted, but, uh, you know, often become more relevant. Um, I think... Uh, I, I have to pay um, another debt to Bruce Schneier and his um, website or, or newsletter Cryptogram for identifying the sort of underlying flaws in a lot of the IT security promises that we get made. And that's that's the thing that um, drives me to think that something big and simple like data minimization um, needs to be the answer for a lot of uh, problems rather than administrivia rather than a million forms and a, and a million sort of micro compliance sort of requirements. Great. Thanks, David. We'll put some of those links into the show notes. So, uh, Sunita, where, what are your go-to resources? Well, one thing we haven't talked about today is the goal of how we protect minors online. One report that I found really useful was one that was released by UNICEF two years ago. So UNICEF is obviously the United Nations Children's Fund and it's an organisation I hold in high regard and also worked there many years ago. Um, but it's a discussion paper. It's not necessarily an official UNICEF position, but it looks at different approaches to this question of age assurance and, you know, and an examine so age assurance is around kind of how we how we determine the the age of, of users, which is quite um, I guess is quite a centerpiece of of approaches to protecting minors online, and examines them against the United Nations Convention Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is the guiding human rights framework for children's rights, and that throws up some really interesting questions for policymakers. So it's a really interesting read, I think, in in drawing out some of the different dimensions around how we protect minors online, minors' privacy online. Mm, thank you. We'll certainly add a link uh, to that one. Uh, so, Anna, to wrap up, um, your resources that uh, that you recommend to people wanting to learn more about this area. So, in terms of focusing on the Privacy Act review before us at the moment, we have tried to produce some summaries and overviews and useful links. And um, and by we, I mean Salinger Privacy, so that's a shameless plug for our <laughs> own resources as well. But um, in terms of 
podcasts in this space. My don't miss weekly podcast that I listen to without fail is This Week in Digital Trust, which is produced by 11M, so another privacy consultancy firm uh, similar to ours. So I recommend that for your weekly podcast. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of shameless plugs, we have a report out today from the Tech Policy Design Centre called Cultivating Coordination. And this is really focused on how do we ensure that all of these really uh, important privacy reforms um, as they go through government are also coordinated with some, you know, an agenda that is jam-packed from cybersecurity uh, to digital identity to the National uh, Reconstruction Fund uh, to the the skills agenda. We really need to improve coordination uh, across government on all of these things um, to ensure that, you know, when we're looking at, for example, Sunita's touched there on uh, children's age verification, um, that's a question in the context of privacy, but equally in the context of e-safety. And so recommend that report um, for people interested in how we actually improve the coordination on digital policy issues across government. Sunita, David, Anna, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, Really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And hopefully our listeners feel like they have some information uh, to guide them and uh, some issues that they can go away and, and learn some more about or have some good, interesting dinner party conversations. So thank you so much for joining us. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was recorded on Ngunnawal lands with sound engineering by ANU Studio. Amy Denmead provided invaluable research support. Post-production is by Martin Franklin from East Coast Studio. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.